back, Cycle Friends, and oh my gosh, do I have a hot, hot guest today. I am so excited to talk to her. I have been thinking about her writings uh, for months. I'm sure so many of you guys have too, and that is Heather Cox Richardson, who you might recognize from such episodes as her massively, I believe it's the number one um, uh, Substack politics pod, or uh, Substack, and it's called Letters from an American. And it is just an absolute testament to how public scholarship should get done. It's an amazing uh, resource. I've learned so much about history reading it. Um, Heather is also the host of a new podcast that she hosts on her Substack. Uh, it's called the Now and Then Pod. They've got about 10 episodes in there, and all of the topics were fascinating. So I think you guys should check that out as well. Um, she's an incredibly, uh, incredibly accomplished scholar. Six books. A, a BA from Harvard, a PhD from Harvard, so way smarter than me, an expert particularly on the American Civil War, um, but just an absolutely intriguing individual that has really done a lot to get Americans thinking about democracy and what it takes to maintain it. Heather, I am so happy to have you today. Well, I'm thrilled to be here, but I have to say, I listened to that list of things I've accomplished, and you know what I hear? I hear man, she's old. <laughs> because basically, <laughs> it's just that I've done a lot of stuff because I've been around a long time. Ah, no, no. I mean, trust me, you you're, you should never discount this uh, resume. It's an absolutely impressive resume. It's no wonder Joe Biden turned to you for advice. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just incredible that you've, I don't know how you find the time. That's what I think most of us are wondering. Like, how do you do all of this? Because, you know, coming from the academic community, uh, and, and Heather's a full professor at Harvard, right? No, 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 um, at Boston College. At Boston yeah. College. Yeah, Boston College. Knowing what it takes to get tenure and to maintain it in this system, I mean, it's just amazing. So I don't know, how do you do it? Do you just not sleep? I don't sleep as much as I would like to, for sure. I will say that <laughs> the pandemic weirdly helped because I was essentially stuck at home. But I think finally, I think what really has helped is that I love to write and that I see the world, have always seen the world through words. So while I'm making sense of the world for other people on um, Substack or on Facebook in Letters from an American or um, in on the Now and Then Pod or whatever, I'm actually making sense of the world for myself as well. It's not like I think, oh, here's what's happening in the world and now I'm going to go home and write about it. It's more that writing about it helps me to put my own feet under me, which I think helps uh, make it a little that's, more powerful. That, I got to tell you, it comes across. And and that's what I like about it. It's more like a, a diary account of, of this time that we're living in, but not like, hey, this is what happened today. Like, this is how this stuff that's happening relates to historic, you know, historical events. And it's just so good because it's like reading someone's diary, but not about who they have a crush on. Well, it's entirely <laughs> supposed to be a diary. It is, in fact, the record of where we are. And I write it to, to you know, in my mind about six friends. And that's, I think, why it is as intimate as it is, because there are times when, you know, I, I think, oh, I can't write that. You know, that's that's too out there. Or that's whatever. And I think, would I say that to, you know, my college roommate and all that? And if the answer is yes, I'm like, well, then, then you know, forget it. I don't care who is on the other side, who I'm worried about impressing or whatever. I'm going to write it to my friend. And if somebody else wants to read it, they're welcome to. But I'm not going to think about the, the the people who are, you know, the the maybe bigger names of people who are reading me. That's so amazing. And, you know, honestly, like I, my Twitter is kind of a combination of like a, a, a lecture pulpit. I, I pulpit there all day on messaging and how to effectively communicate 
to regular people because none of the people that are listening to this pod to listen to your pods and read um, a lot of the stuff that we put out are people that we that are are going to be the types that are affected by um, out party in party fundamentals and inflation, <laughs> right? So when we want to reach those folks, you know that, that's a, that's a whole different game. But what I really love is that you took this fa- loyal Facebook following, and my God, you have a, a million and a half followers on Facebook. I mean that it's just so impressive. I think it's probably one of the biggest on the left, and um, you know it, you're not doing it off of what I call fear capitalism. So. You know, it's quite easy to to get a large following on social media if you are rhetorically, you know, lambasting everything. <laughs> it's all red meat all the time, um, you know, if you're outrageous kind of. But to sell serious uh, analysis and, and critique and commentary to such a large audience is just absolutely a testament to what it, to how it resonates with your readers and that's why I was so excited to bring you on and I knew my fans would be you know absolutely ecstatic to hear a little bit more about your thoughts and and so let me ask you this all right a lot of the writing obviously has to deal with our democratic crisis I think you like me have really internalized this component of fighting authoritarianism or autocracy um, you know the 12 things the tyranny um, Tim Snyder book says how critical it is to, to say something that it's uncomfortable that it can be embarrassing that you have to put yourself out there uh, I am a natural uh, pragmatist you know I, I will never say I'm like moderate or liberal I am um, temperamentally moderate and pragmatic right uh, so to run around telling people hey we're all gonna die <laughs> like, like if you know this doesn't look good and we're all gonna die and we've you know we may all be going to schools to learn how to be good brides to our husbands in a few years like that stuff's not natural to me at all i i've always kind of you know rolled my eyes at the tinfoil hat chicken little folks so tell me a little bit about how you know you started to put your foot out into this okay there's an emergency and i, and I have to tell people about it well, I did not intend to uh, to to start from that. I um I because of the work I have done in American politics, uh, in in studying American politics. Remember, I wrote a history of the Republican Party. I have not infrequently in the past been targets of people on the right, so I was not unaccustomed to that. But um, what what I guess what really pushed me over the edge, and you know, I was used to the hate mail and all that, and I was writing for you know the Washington Post and the you know the New York Times and sort of the the places that academics write. And right after Trump got elected, uh, when Charlie Kirk started the um, the professor watch list, I was on it. The the I was one of the first incarnations on it. And what was I still I vividly remember it because what he had done is he had picked up, I believe anyway, had picked up my name from another list I was on, a very obscure list I was on for being, you know, sort of an, an anti-American whatever. Um, it's a long story behind that, but nobody had paid any attention to that. So I think he was sort of starting his, um, you know, what I've always thought was just a grifting opportunity with the professor watch list and grabbed my name off of that. And what w- I came down that morning, um, you know, in my pajamas, my kitchen in my home at the time was very dark. And I opened up my laptop next to the coffee, which I always would do. And it was flooded with messages from people horrified that I had been on this. And what horrified me was not so much that I was on, on this new, obviously grifting professor watch list, but that so many people were horrified by it because I'm like, wait, this has been my life now for years. This is not normal. So I wrote a 
Facebook posts to my friends on Facebook. There's not on my professional Facebook, but to my friends saying, um, you know, this is where we are and this is why, you know, that the, he thought that I'm a danger to society and I'm not, I'm a danger to people like him. And, and I basically said, you know, this is, um, you know, don't, and people have asked if I'm going to stop defending American democracy. And of course I'm not because America is still worth fighting for. Well, it went viral. I mean, it just went, I mean, I had never seen viral before and that was really viral because I think it gave voice. It was not a, it was a very simple heart felt posts that gave voice to people who wanted to take America back. And that was that. And then um, after the the travel ban, which more popularly is known as the Muslim ban, I wrote again to my friends. Um, ironically, I had just written a piece for The Guardian that I really liked and basically nobody paid any attention to because I wrote a post for my friends saying this is a shock event. They're trying to destabilize society. But the trick to that is just as happened with the Confederacy in 1861, when you destabilize society and throw all the cards up in the air, you are they are not necessarily in control of how they come back down. So our job is to make sure they come back down into a more just, better society. That too went viral. So I had that background and I let that be, you know that go. But then, you know, in 2019, September of 2019, I had kept about 22,000 people on my professional Facebook page and written essays for them on one thing or another. Sometimes it was personal, sometimes it was about politics. And in September of 2019, I wrote a piece sort of summarizing where I thought we were in America at the time, including the fact that Adam Schiff had just written a letter to then acting director of the um, uh uh, the, the DNI, um, the director of national, yeah, in which he, in which he said, um, you know, we know you're withholding information and we believe you're breaking a law about a whistleblower handed over. So I wrote about that and people flooded me with questions and I didn't want to write every night. So the next night on the 17th, I wrote again, and then I was even more flooded with questions. And I wrote again, I think on the 18th or the 19th, and I've written every night since really just answering the questions that people ask me. That's really amazing. And it's just such a, I mean, it, I think it has really added such an element to the commentary on, on, on the topics of what we're dealing with, because, um, you know, honestly, like what we're living through is, is you know, there's no period of history that repeats, right? When it does resurface, it resurfaces in a new form. It's evolution, right? And so with these problems that we're having today in America are really coming from two particular world history events. I mean, obviously the American Civil War, of which you're an expert, and then the, the rise of fascism in Italy, in Germany, in Japan, in the 1920s and 1930s. And, you know, I was joking that if, if, if the Third Reich and the, and the Southern Secessionists made a baby, it would be the problem that we have right now. And both of, both of these problems... Uh, to some extent, are because of un uh, not doing the hard right work after the first American Civil War, right? And 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 I want you to talk a little bit about that because I think, like I think a lot of us uh, who are listening to this pod are going to know the history that you know we had the Civil War, we had Reconstruction, the Reconstruction period ends, and the gains for blacks in the South get rolled back immediately. The segregation system emerges, right? But like. How do we, and then at some point in the 50s or the 40s, they start putting up these Civil War um, monuments to reinforce segregation because that's when the first civil rights legislation was you know, getting pushed through Congress. Of course, the big one comes in the 60s that actually makes the change. So they, they do that as a form of protest. That's all fine and dandy. 
Heather, explain to the audience to me, because I, I have just been dying to fucking know this. How did we end up naming half of our military bases after Southern Confederate losers who tried to, you know, treason the country? Okay, so I'm ha- I have to laugh at an entire wrap-up of American history that says, okay, that's all fine and dandy. <laughs> well, and on that note, I think we should just end this conversation, don't you? Because we're good, right? Yeah, um, we got it. <laughs> so, so I think there's a couple of things that are important about the history that you just laid out. And that is that I think people don't spend enough time thinking about what happened during Reconstruction. So in fact, when we talk about the end of black rights after the Civil War, of course, we get the expansion of black rights first through the 13th Amendment, which ends um, uh, the system, the economic system of enslavement, except in condition, never mind, you don't have to go into, not always, you know, obviously, if you're not You can still slavery if you're convicted of a crime, but and that's an important caveat. We also had the Fourteenth in um, 1868, which uses the federal government to guarantee that states cannot create classes of citizens; that they have to treat everybody the same. And that's huge right now, of course. And then the Fifteenth in 1870, we get the protection of black male voting, but we get that expansion of rights through uh, 1870, and then of course in 1870 we also get uh, Congress putting in place the um, Department of Justice to make sure that the federal government can, in fact, make, you know, guarantee that people, that citizens are treated equally in the southern states primarily is what they're looking at then. So we get this high watermark in 1870. But then what happens? What happens is that with the Department of Justice uh, coming down on the KKK, which had, had, um, had, risen in the wake of the Civil War in order to stop black participation in society, particularly in voting, white Southern racists, former Confederates, change their argument for why they don't want black people participating in society. And they literally start to say, completely disingenuously, we don't mind black people participating in society. That was never our problem, which is completely crap. They're saying something the exact opposite, the same people like months before. But what they say is that our complaint is not about black people. Our complaint is that poor people who don't have property, if they can vote, as they are now able to do in the southern states after the 15th Amendment, if they are able to vote, they're going to vote for leaders who are going to promise them stuff, you know, like roads and schools and hospitals and, you know, and, 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 you know, social safety kind of things, social kinds of things. But because they don't have any property, of course, because it was illegal for enslaved people to have property, but because they don't have property, what that means is that when those leaders vote for those things, the only way to pay for them is going to be with tax levies. Because of course, the Republicans during the Civil War had invented our first national system of taxation and because of local taxes as well. So they say the only way you're going to pay for that is with taxes. And taxes are going to come from property owners. And property owners, of course, in the American South after the Civil War are white. So they start to say that if you let, and that's the word, black people vote, they are going to vote for for what is essentially a redistribution of wealth from propertied people to poor people, from white people to black people. And this, they say in 1871, is socialism. And that's the word they are using, socialism. 
And oh, wow. Yes. So, yeah, this is interesting. So, yeah. I mean, it's just, if anybody has access to old copies, for example, or indexes of the New York Times, search for the word socialism, because everybody thinks it comes up after 1917 and the Bolshevik, Bolshevik Revolution, and it yeah, does yeah, that's not. that's I kind of thought. I thought it was like kind of off the radar until then, No, you know? no, it is yeah, everywhere in 1871. They've been wedge-issuing now then, unanswered. Un, um, they've been wedge-issuing socialism against us now since the 18th. 18- since 1871, well, and, Heather Cox Well, and it's, told us so. it's really important to understand that they do not mean the kind of socialism that becomes known as international socialism during the 20th century, the idea in which the government owns the means of production. It is literally tied to the idea of poor people voting. Literally, and, 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 you know, the example that they use, of course, is in the spring of 1871 in Paris. Uh, the Paris communards take over the city of Paris. They're a bunch of workers. And the way that gets conveyed to America is that workers, poor people, have taken over society and they're burning down business, businesses and burning the Tuileries and, you know, killing Catholic priests. And we don't want that to come to America. And that idea of the idea that black people especially, but that's going to be expanded to brown people and women, of course, as different eras move forward, the idea that that is socialism is everywhere in American society. And what what people, the mistake people make, I think, is identifying that the objection to a, a society that, that shaves off the, the razor-sharp edges of industrial capitalism is somehow a, a communistic society is or a socialistic society, they, they say, well, no, it's really about race. But no, it's really about economics. And the trick in America is it's both. That what the Confederates did most persuasively is to link the idea of race with the idea of a government that answers to the needs of ordinary Americans. So it is both. And what they are able to do at different times is to use racism to push the idea of a government that is completely unbeholden to its people, or on the other hand, to push the idea of class. It can be one or the other, or both at the same time. And so you have Reagan, for example, talking about restoring, you know, the small government. And, you know, the the he does it by talking about the welfare queen. I mean, he literally does it with racism. So then, you know, once you get the idea that the federal government protection of black rights is a form of socialism or communism, they even use that word occasionally after the Paris Commune, um, once you get that idea, what you see then is the, the sort of centering of American identity around the idea of the individual. And that individual is almost always a white man who dominates both women and people of color around him. And of course, beginning in this very period during Reconstruction, that's the American cowboy. So that idea that the American individual is uh, standing alone against this communistic or socialistic government, which is completely ahistorical, by the way, um, becomes ingrained in American society. So in fact, you get the resurrection by the 1880s, 1890s of the idea that the Confederacy was not about protecting enslavement, which it a thousand percent was, but that it was about protecting individualism against an overreaching government. And it's actually in that period, not in the 1950s that you see statues to Confederate soldiers going up all around America, not just in the South, although it's primarily there, but all around America between 1890 and about 1920, you get a ton of these statues with them saying you really owe it to the Confederates because we were the ones trying to hold the line against this overreaching government. And of course, that's exactly what 
Republicans then tap into after um, the Civil Rights Act of 1864 and then the Voting Rights Act of 1865, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, 1964 and then 1965. And in fact, Stone Mountain in Georgia, which most people associate with the Confederacy and the post-Civil War period, is dedicated in May of 1970. You know, that's when that goes up. And it, it's very it's very consciously an attempt to say, listen, we're all about ending communism. Oh, and of course, the rights of minorities and women in American society. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, people, <laughs> I, this just, just drives me nuts. I and mean, we were talking about Charlie Kirk and the disingenuousness of fear capitalism, right? And, and these professor watch lists, which is exactly right. I mean, you can't argue with the results. This kid's now running a, um, I went down and did a show to talk to his audience, right? Because a lot of them are being encouraged to risk their lives by not getting vaccinated. So I thought it might be nice to go down there and tell them, hey, you don't have to fucking die from a preventable disease, right? But I also wanted to scope out like the resources coming into Turning Point, which is just one of 15 different organizations being financed by big money on the right. I get down there and he's got five buildings on this campus, okay? Five of them. One of them is titled Turning Point Logistics Center, okay? And, you know, a state-of-the-art studio. It's got kids in there flying all over the country to indoctrinate college students, right? And, you know, it's quite clear that, you know, he's built this fear capitalist empire off of it. But, you know, the, the irony is he's got this big sign in there that says Big Gov Sucks or something like that, right? <laughs> I can't help and point out to him. I'm like, yeah, there's nothing to me, like the epitome of big government is putting cameras in people's classrooms and teacher narc lines, you know? Well, and this, I think, speaks to the the dramatically changing nature of the Republican Party in this moment, because in fact, well, many of them rose to power with this idea that they were going to restore the, you know, the rights of individuals. And of course, the, the racism and the sexism inherent in that historically, they have turned into, um, you know, at best an oligarchy and what really looks like an authoritarian system intending to impose their will on the rest of us. And that you know, that's what I keep talking about. It's like, I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I care very deeply that you that you support American democracy and not authoritarianism. And that I and think And they're going to is... do exactly what the Nazis did, too. So, like, this gaslighting shit, like, probably the worst thing that ever happened to the world, I think, was the public releasing of the Goebbels, uh, Goebbels diaries or Goebbels, whatever. I don't see the R. And I think he might have just made that up. So anyway, because <laughs> <laughs> Gobble, who wants to be Gobble, right? The Goebbels diaries, right? Like they, they is so clear to me. Like I, I, the reason I, I decided to go intensively and st to study the Third Reich, the rise of the Nazi party and how they amassed power was because I wanted to prove to myself I was being uh, hyperbolic, that I should calm the hell down, <laughs> you know, that things were not that bad. And instead, as I started to dig into it, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Because <laughs> like all of the stuff that went down in that period, a lot of it is the stuff that we're seeing now. And one of them that's most effective is this gaslighting thing, right? I mean, we act like the Republicans have been gaslighting forever. To some extent, they have, right? We found weapons of mass destruction. Everyone else is wrong. We found them, even though you never saw them. They've always gaslighted, but we've never seen it in a full court press across multiple politicians, all the way up through the party leadership, 
And I'm, I'm not talking about Trump. I'm talking about the congressional leadership. And this gaslighting effort has become so proficient that what it's tr attempting to do, what it's going to ultimately roll out this fall, is a campaign focused on individual rights for a party that is stripping them. No, I think that's very right. And I think that, you know, we call it gaslighting, and there's a, a long history of that in psychology. But it's also um, psyops, psychological operations. And that is, you know, something that people studied really heavily after World War II, and that we have forgotten at our peril, because one of the things that people like... Um, Eric Hoffer pointed out in his True Believers is that once you have bought into even a small lie, um, you need psychologically to continue to believe it because you don't want to say to yourself, oh, I was such a weenie. I believed that. So yes, exactly. the, the deeper you, you, you get committed to it. Yes, definitely. Well, and you know who, who did this brilliantly, I think, was J.K. Rowling in Harry Potter. I mean, if you think of Bellatrix Lestrange, she literally she's in it. You know, it, it, it doesn't matter when he when uh, Voldemort turns against her favorite nephew and turns against the family because she has so bought into it, she can't turn against it without extraordinary psychological damage. And that piece of it is the piece that, you know, I just find really astonishing in the wake of Trump because so many people, and, and I believe this across the board, if you had told them in 2015 that they would get to a place where they were now arguing in favor of, you know, getting rid of Roe v. Wade, uh, taking on Disney, you know, focusing on children's toys, attacking public school teachers, you know, believing that the government is is um, uh, is illegitimate, they would have said, "Oh, I would never do that," and yet here they are. And they can't seem to let go of it. And this, you know, it, it's pretty well established psychologically. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just so interesting to like the extent of the red lines that they've blown through, right? And we were talking a little bit about getting people to panic. Panic, that what I learned, I mean, so I'm studying this, this Third Reich's, you know, macro. Basically, I go through all of history. And then once I do all of that like 15 times, <laughs> trying to trying to earn at least a, like a de facto, like a, a master's degree, right, in, in this history. So I go through it again, and then I start to look at all the uh, personal accounts, you know, all the diary accounts. And what I start to see is this common thread. Like, it's, it, 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 they come, they ban Jews out of the civil service, right? Then they ban the communist party. All these things are happening. People cannot believe that the status quo is, is unstable. Like, they just can't accept it. It is so extreme that when you look at the diary accounts of some Jewish people in places like Poland or Hungary or even in, in Germany, they they are they are hearing rumors of this extraordinary roundup, right? But they are writing after they report the rumors. They're in their next almost always the next thing they say is, "But I am sure that's not going to happen in Poland." <laughs> right? And then they you know, then I'm watching this Ukraine run up, and it, it it hits me. Okay, like it's not it wasn't tech, it wasn't news access, it wasn't you know, anything to do with the time period of the 1920s, 1930s that made it impossible for people to panic because in 2022, when there was 180,000 Russian soldiers sitting across your border after they've already annexed one of your pieces of land, you you, you saw those reporters running around uh, Ky uh, Kyiv and, and other cities asking people if they thought the Russians were going to invade it almost universally. They were dismissive of it, Right. So I think the real problem is, like, how do you get people to appreciate the precariousness of the situation we're in 
one useful way to do that is to is to you know say look all of these things you would never have believed that the Republican Party would do that. So why would you believe that they won't do more things that you would never believe, right? And I don't know how to solve that problem. I think it's it's a very uh, important problem to solve to beat a midterm effect because because right now there is one set of the electorate that's going to be hit very hard with messaging that tells them democracy is on the line, America is going to collapse if you don't go vote. But that will not be us. It will be the other side, okay? Because the, the reason that Republicans are willing to dismantle democracy are coming so hard after, you know, embracing autocracy so, so aggressively is every day it's psychological warfare being pumped into that electorate and it's telling them we're the enemy, okay? This, all the shit that they're doing, that's what they get told about us. And we have to make sure people understand democracies on the ballot. No one's going to get to that realization unless we're making it an important frame. I think that's right. I also think there is another important psychological concept at play here, and that speaks to why, for example, people in Ukraine did not want to believe that what was happening was happening, and people in America didn't want to either and don't want to now, and that's the idea of projection. You know, I really believe that most human beings are decent people. You know, they're really just getting through their day, putting food on the table, you know, maybe, you know, trying to have a, a little bit of fun or whatever. But the problem is you look at, for example, what happened in Ukraine and you say, who would do that? Who would who would do that? Because I wouldn't do that. None of my friends would do that. So it can't possibly happen because I would not do that. And and that's exactly what the radical right in America has weaponized against this country. The idea that, of course, we wouldn't fire people based on their political beliefs because you and I wouldn't do that. So we assume they wouldn't do that. And part of what I try and do is to explain in a really straightforward way, yes, this is what happened. Here's when it happened. Here's the documents that show that it happened. Just sort of to pull the veil back and say, you're a decent person. I'm a decent person. Most of us are decent person, de decent people. But we have we're under attack by a radical group that really does wish us ill, and that I think is is a very hard psychological hurdle to cross because most people don't want to believe it. They simply can't believe there's a world like that. And I certainly have, have experienced that in in many different times where I think, oh, that couldn't possibly be happening because who would do that? I mean, I wouldn't do that. And then you find out that it. You know, as I, as I said to somebody, if if your if your roommate stole twenty bucks from you, you'd get mad at your roommate. Um, if your roommate went, you know, hacked into your computer, cleaned out your parents, you know, uh, all their bank accounts, uh, sold their house, uh, set them up for you know to go to prison or whatever, you wouldn't believe it because it's so extraordinary and it's so far beyond the pale of anything you can imagine. You you would say, oh, no, that didn't happen because it's so far beyond what you can even imagine. And that, I think, is part of the hurdle is to say to people, yeah, while you're sitting over here worried about your 20 bucks, they are, in fact, cleaning out your bank accounts and selling your house and setting you up to go to prison. And that's that's a harder a harder thing to explain to people. Yeah, I think the abstract always is. And that's why one of the you know messaging revolutions of trying to get people to understand is, look, it, 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 there is all these different things, right? I mean, you got to pick one, and then you got to make it seem like the biggest deal in the world, right? I mean, they don't—they didn't come to Virginia with CRT, and they're going to take this everywhere. 
then come with CRT messaging about New York City and, you know, here it's spreading here and there. It's cake. You know, the shit that we would make with graphs and whatever. They put one woman, one older, middle-aged, white-looking mom, wringing her hands about how her child was exposed to porn by, written by a black author in her school, right? <laughs> like, that's, at the end of the day, I think, like, what I, I, I'm struggling to get people to understand is, like, we can win the arguments, and we do. We win the arguments every cycle because the substance is, it, it favors us, right? But at the end of the day, what we have to go win is it, it, it's not against a, a party that's running a normal system. It's running a propaganda system that has now been, it's not just in its infancy anymore. It's now institutionalized and running at full speed. And we will have to find a way to break through that noise or we will lose. It is that simple. Heather, this, it's so fascinating. Uh, can, oh, sorry, I, was, go ahead. I was just going to say, this is why I hammer all the time on the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. You know, that is simple and, and says, yeah, we care about a country that does these basic things. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's something I think people need to hear, that we are facing a crisis in our American democracy and we can either reclaim it or lose it. I like it. And you know what? Help, having you out there every day. Um, you know, speaking for democracy is, is a huge asset. I can't thank you enough for coming on to the pod. I, I knew this was going to be hard for me. I was like, I could have wanted to talk to her for like two hours, but I've learned the audience likes 30 minutes. So that's what we're going to give them. Sounds great. It's been a joy to be here and I'm with them. I can't listen to anything longer than 30 minutes either. <laughs> that's, I always aim to meet the audience where they are, you know? <laughs> well, th thanks Heather for coming on. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun.